Hey everyone, welcome to the Kubernetes Unpacked podcast where we talk about literally everything Kubernetes related from clouds on-prem to Kubernetes for infrastructure engineers and developers and everything in between. My name is Michael Levan and I'm joined today with Natan Yellen who is the CEO of Robusta and we'll be talking about Kubernetes logging and its shortcomings. Natan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Absolutely. Absolutely, man. So we're going to be getting into, you know, your company and all of that good stuff, but let's go ahead and jump right into the first question, which is what do you do in the Kubernetes space today? And what have you done in the past? So I'm one of the co-founders of Robusta.dev. And what we do is we make it easier to troubleshoot issues in Kubernetes to take your alerts, tell you what those alerts mean and give you one button to fix them. Um, and going back a little before that, then I was a developer for many years. And I, in my last job before Robusta, I worked as a developer that wrote software for Kubernetes. And what me and my co-founder noticed is that a lot of the times we had these Slack channels that just kept on piling up with all these different notifications. And there were too many alerts and we didn't always have the time to go and investigate each of those. So we started thinking, how can we really approach alerting from a different perspective and try and make it a lot easier and really streamline the entire process. That totally makes sense. Uh, funny enough, I was just having a consulting call right before this podcast, and we were talking about exactly that, you know, a million different messages popping up, trying to use chat bots to kind of manage them all and all that good stuff. So clearly uh, people are still having those problems <laughs> right now. Yeah, and, and they're very much likely continue to, right? Yeah. So cool, man. So, you know, you started out your career uh, as a developer, I imagine, then you started writing uh, more Kubernetes centric stuff, maybe CRDs, operators, all that, I'm assuming. Yeah, I first, so I went to, I did live security work, um, working in cybersecurity products, and then went to a cybersecurity company that did cybersecurity for Kubernetes. So before that, I really had zero Kubernetes knowledge. So in the time period of about a month, I had to get up and running and go from not knowing what Kubernetes was to writing code Go, um, sorry, Go code uh, that listened to the API server, got advanced and did different things. So that was a really interesting experience. Yeah, and uh, no other better way to start than where everybody decides not to uh, focus on, which is Kubernetes security. So it's, uh, yeah, I think that's definitely a good place to start is right where everything is very much needed. Cool, man. Cool. So let's talk about, you know, what the challenges are with logging and troubleshooting, especially in production level environments. Uh, well, really any environment, right? So, you know, whether you're in dev, whether you're in UAT, whether you're in prod, you have to have the ability to check logs and to have the ability to troubleshoot. So if you're in a dev environment and you're, you know, releasing uh, a new version or a beta version or something like that to test it before it hits UAT, you got to be able to troubleshoot and get logs, especially in a dev environment to be able to figure out what's happening. Same thing in UAT. And again, especially in production, if something goes down, uh, you don't want to be spending 10 hours trying to figure out just what it is, right? Which is where, you know, observability comes into play, where logging metrics, all of that good stuff. So in your opinion, and this is, you know, of course, where you focus, what are the challenges of logging? What are the challenges of troubleshooting in any environment? I think the problem is that we're throwing humans at a machine problem. And what I mean by that is let's say you have a microservice that's running. And now there's a whole bunch of load that comes in. Then fortunately, we have the auto scaler that kicks in 
and it really scales up that service and the load goes away and it scales down. Now, imagine that you didn't have the autoscaler and you had a human sitting there and the human had to scale it up and scale it down and handle all of that process. Then you'd be throwing a human that ultimately is a machine problem and needs a solution that needs automation. And I think when it comes to alerting and troubleshooting and monitoring and logging, then we're still throwing humans at a problem that's become this exponential machine problem. And the reason for that is that we used to have one copy of our application running in some environment, and it was easy to troubleshoot that because you go, you look at one environment, you'd run a few commands, everything was in one place, and there was this kind of linear flow. But we've scaled up that microservice, and we've scaled a number of microservices. So now you have all these microservices, and they're running in all these environments, and you have this super dynamic environment. But then that also means that sometimes you've scaled up exponentially the amount of alerts that you have and the number of issues that you have to troubleshoot. And then when it comes to troubleshooting it, you're throwing a human at what ultimately is an exponential problem or a problem that needs to be handled by machines. Yep. I think that makes sense. I remember when I first started out my career many, many years ago, and I'm, I'm sure people still do it right now. You know, you'd walk by where all of the sysadmins sit and there would be all these huge monitors, right? <laughs> Just see, yep. seeing what was happening in every environment. And I think that monitoring is still like that today, right? Like monitoring is very much go look at a problem yourself, whereas observability is more like take logs, take metrics, take traces, and attempt to figure out what's going on and fix the issue from a performance perspective with those logs, metrics, et cetera. But it's still a human doing it, right? And, you know, yeah. uh, there's there's some like automated solutions out there that are trying to fix that, I think, you know, like something that comes to mind right away are like automatic playbooks where, you know, there's, there's a solution that, you know, hey, if this error occurs, if this log comes in, um, if this log sends off this alert, go run this automatic playbook. And that helps to a certain extent, but there are so many things that could go wrong that it's almost like you need engineers just writing those playbooks. Yeah. Yeah. That's absolutely true. We see that with the live companies we work with. We come into the people reach out to us and we say, okay, how do we handle their room today? And then they point us at this wiki page yeah. or um, a whole wiki that has the different playbooks they've written down, but they're manual playbooks. And then some places will start to automate that but you really have a live duplicate effort happening across the entire industry. Because if you look at the actual alerts that are firing in many of these environments, for many companies, it's actually the same alerts. There's like a finite number of problems that everyone runs into. And then there's a small number of problems that are company specific. But if you look at something like uh, CPU throttling or umkills, or if you look at crashing pods, or if you um, look at problems with API server, if you look at all these different issues, really it's the same issues in every single company. And that's in some way the concept behind Docker and the concept behind infrastructure as code is that we're all using the same joint components. So you can kind of share those components between different companies via automation, whether it's a Helm chart or it's kind of putting that in a Docker file and then we inherit from those base Docker images. But there's been this move to kind of reuse the way that we set up infrastructure. And there's been this, this move to reuse the way that we operate, like with an autoscaler where each company doesn't have to write their own autoscaler, they just use the autoscaler from Kubernetes. So we're seeing this massive reuse that has enabled companies to really move faster in terms of how they set stuff up and in terms of how they scale. But when it comes to learning and troubleshooting, then you're expected to handle all that alone. Um, and I saw that as a developer, like there was a Slack channel that had all these alerts and I was expected 
to somehow stay on top of all of that and look at every one of many of sometimes uh, tens to hundreds of alerts that would come in, understand understand what made sense, what didn't make sense, and to sometimes even do that in addition to all my other responsibilities in the company. So that's a really, really hard problem to do on your own. So I love the way that you put that because where Kubernetes clusters are right now, they could literally be anywhere. You could be running them in the cloud. You could be running them uh, raw Kubernetes cluster. I don't know why anybody would want to do that. Uh, <laughs> you could be running it in OpenStack. Uh, you could be running it in like a bunch of different places. And then something like the Kubernetes autoscaler, which literally uh, has a plugin for all of these different environments, can manage all of that for you in one uh I don't want to call it feature, but one style product, right? Which is like the autoscaler. Yeah. But then when it comes to the troubleshooting pieces of this, we are still, uh, we're still doing the same thing that we've been doing for however long, 20 years, 30 years, more than that, which is looking at a log, looking at some error, and then trying to figure it out manually. Um, and exactly like you just said around the playbooks, you know, there, I, I like to think that there are kind of three stages right now. Uh, well, that's kind of been going on. You know, you think about the general playbooks, which, you know, for anybody that's uh, read the Google SRE handbook, you know, playbooks are just exactly like you said, a list of instructions around what you should do if a problem occurs, which is good. It saves you hours of troubleshooting, but you still have to go in and do it. And if the playbook doesn't run or work as expected, you still got to troubleshoot anyways. And then there's the second phase of this where, okay, you have an automatic playbook. And if this log comes in and this alert kicks off, maybe that alert automatically goes and kicks off a pipeline for you to run the automatic playbook and hopefully fix it for you. Again, if that doesn't work, then you still got to go in and troubleshoot it anyways. But now what you're saying is we're at almost the third stage, which is, okay, all of this stuff is great, but there's still a ton of human intervention. Uh, engineers still have to take out more than 50% of their day putting out fires versus driving uh, value-driven work for the business, which you know should be 80% of their time and 20% of their time should be troubleshooting. It, how can we kind of solve this problem right now that we're having? Yeah, and I, I can tell you, I mean, some of the world's biggest companies are using automated solutions to do that. And I, I know because in some cases that solution is robust. Mm -hmm. um, and the answer had, really has many parts. But I wanna, before we jump into that, I want to just really compare it to how we set up our environments. And I want to go back for a moment to when I first started as a developer. Um, I had a server to set up. So I would like go online. I would Google uh, UbuntuTutorials.com, uh, how to install Apache. And then I'd follow instructions. I'd copy paste it. That's in some ways kind of like a playbook. And I would copy paste it, connect the server and SSH. I would run these set of commands. Then when I wanted to automate that, I would put in a script. I would do my own custom automation. So that's kind of stage two, right? Stage one is running it manually. Stage two is then scripting that. And then the, uh, this change over, uh, came over the world where we moved to these community-driven um, open source solutions that kind of took that knowledge for how to set up that Apache server and how to configure it. And they turned that into community knowledge. And what I mean by that is I'll no longer go and run these commands to set it up. That knowledge for how to set up an Apache server is just contained in a declarative Docker file. And I reuse that knowledge in my company by just deploying an existing uh, Docker container. So we've taken the knowledge and first it went from being inside like a written tutorial in human readable format 
to being an ad hoc bash script. And then it moved to being this Docker file, which is running on top of a platform that was really built for that precise type of knowledge sharing. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Yeah, 100%. So, oh, sorry, go ahead. So what we're trying to do is to take that same change, take that same concept, and then apply it to the concept of troubleshooting. So if you look at then uh, how we troubleshoot, then historically you would take one server and you would go and you would gather different logs, you would look at that and do this manual investigation. Then people can't have started doing ad hoc solutions where they automate that process. We see a lot of companies that have in-house solutions where they automate their response to alerts, um, especially common in Fortune 500 companies. We see a lot of people who have in-house solutions for that. And then the third stage of that is to not just do like bash scripts or um, your own ad hoc server for that, but to really develop a platform that's built with those use cases in mind. And the reason a platform is important is because you get so many more features when you have a platform that was built for that type of thing than having to bake everything in yourself. So compare, for example, setting up um, like a server using a bash script to deploying a Docker container. Docker container is really superior because it's technology that was built for that specific use case. Right. I think that totally makes sense. So essentially what you're saying is, you know, the third stage or so, right, maybe still the second stage, but the third stage is around, okay, we now need to automate these problems away instead of, you know, trying to write an automatic playbook to write a bunch of commands. We're going to create some type of internal in-house application, so to speak. And then maybe if it's something that ends up really, truly helping, Maybe we open source it or maybe we put it out into the world, et cetera. And that could be around, you know, a, a, I think a bunch of different platforms, right? Like even even outside of the logging space, we'll, we'll get back to logging in a second. But even outside of logging, you know, one of the things that comes to mind right away is uh, the cluster API project. So, you know, whether you're running uh, bare metal Kubernetes clusters, whether you're running, uh, you know, uh, clusters in OpenStack, whatever the case may be. Uh, even in the cloud, right? You know, that that project started with like, okay, we need to figure out a way to manage a whole bunch of Kubernetes clusters at scale. We need to figure out a way to upgrade these Kubernetes clusters at scale, right? Whether it's uh, in cluster replacements, whether it's node replacements, whatever the case may be, we have to kind of figure out a way to do this. And then that kind of turned into this huge project, which is now Cluster API. And a lot of people are, are utilizing that. Um, so, you know, from a logging perspective, it, it robusta is really the thing that's trying to fix it from a logging perspective, right? Yeah, from a logging and alerting perspective, the precise problem that we're solving is an alert comes in where something happens in your cluster and you want to know why it happens. And you want to know as fast as you can why it happens. And you want to be able to take, click on one button and apply the different possible solutions to fix it. And that's the, that's the core problem that we're solving. Awesome. So for everybody that's listening, you know, maybe give uh, an example of something that you've seen uh, in a production level environment that Robusta is solving right now. Yeah. So I'll take an example um, with an unkill. So a lot of people are running um, containers and those containers um, will get unkilled where they get killed by the Linux, um, uh, the Linux memory subsystem because they used up too much memory. And when that happens, the first question that everyone wants to know is, okay, why was this unkilled? Was it unkilled because I set my memory limit or my memory request wrong? Was it unkilled because there's a memory leak in the application? So when you have an unkill, then, it, then we have a feature built into Robust and built in automation that goes and it gathers the data about the unkill, and then it'll tell you why it happened and what you can do about it. 
And the cool thing about this is there's no real, like built into Robusta, into the engine itself, the engine doesn't know anything about one kills. The engine is just an automation engine that has these different triggers um, and these different actions it can take to collect evidence. And just one of the rules on top of that platform happens to deal with umkills. So there's a lot of these. A different example there is, um, let's say your pod crashes. First thing everyone wants to see to do is to see the logs. So when a pod crashes, there's a built-in automation that will go and it'll fetch the logs and then send you in Slack a notification about that crashing pod, but with the logs attached that you can see why it crashed. Got it. Okay. So Robusta really underneath the hood, uh, you're not implementing the logic for fixing an umkill. You're really implementing the trigger to fix it if it occurs. Is that is that valid? Yeah, we're, we're doing both parts of it, but it's two separate parts. So there's the engine itself. The engine itself doesn't know anything about umkills. It doesn't know anything about crashing pods, really. The engine itself just knows how to take different events from Kubernetes, from Prometheus alerts, from Elasticsearch, from all these different destinations. And it knows how to apply actions when those events arrive. So it's a trigger action mechanism. Um, and I said that it doesn't know about like cr uh, crashing pods, but it's not precisely correct because it listens to the API server. So a possible trigger could be when a pod crashes, but it doesn't have any understanding of what you should do when that happens. You have to write your own rules. And then the second part of that is as a community, we've written this whole collection of these different rules based on the best practices. So that's like an additional layer on top of the engine that comes with all the batteries already included. Got it. Okay. So you mentioned that Robusta listens to the API server and it just uh, struck a question in my head. And I'm just kind of curious on your thoughts. Um, let's say you have a product, you know, like Robusta, for example, that's listening directly to the API server versus, for example, listening to the Kubernetes informer. Uh, do you see like a pro and con there uh, on, on both sides at all? I don't, I ask because I'm curious of like if maybe you tried both with the Robusta platform or like if you went in one direction for a certain reason or. Yeah, so it's it's an excellent question. Um, and I actually, I used Informers a lot also at my previous job. Um, so Informers is the, the specific, for those of you who aren't familiar, Informers is the specific API in the Go language that you can use to listen to the API server and then build a local cache of all the different objects. And then the other way that you could do it is you could just query the API server directly, like by doing an HTTP uh, GET request. So wh what I said earlier wasn't quite precise. What we're actually doing under the hood is we are actually using informers. Okay. Um, there's, a, there's a VMware project uh, called KubeWatch, which is now deprecated. They discontinued it. Um, it was a Bitnami project, I believe, when they bought Bitnami and discontinued the project. Mm -hmm. um, and what it does is it sends you notifications about changes um, in your Kubernetes server. So actually under the hood, we're now the official maintainers of uh, the official fork of KubeWatch, which uses informers and it's actually implemented uh, using that. That's awesome, man. I actually didn't know that. I used to love the KubeWatch project. And then when I saw that it was deprecated, I was like, oh, that's unfortunate because it was such an awesome project. Uh, and I didn't even realize that Robusta was uh, taking over uh, maintainership of that. That's really cool, man. Awesome. Very yeah. cool. And the guys at VMware were, were very nice. So um, we're also listed now uh, in the official um, KubeWatch repo. Although it's cool. deprecated, we are listed there also as the official maintainers now. That's awesome. So is that a CNCF project or no? I forget. No, it's not a CNCF project. Um, maybe it should. Maybe it should be though. 
<laughs> yeah. Hey, you know, it's uh, I, I I always love to take a look at the list of the the incubator projects uh, to you know to really see what's going on and to see what people are really thinking about from, from a uh, from a Kubernetes perspective. Very cool. That's awesome, man. So with Robusta and and now I'm I I know we were it's funny we were talking before the show we're like oh we're like let's wait a little bit till we get into Robusta but now like my brain is ticking because uh, I'm curious what's happening <laughs> underneath the hood so. When, you know, let's say a problem comes in, an alert comes in, Robusta reads it, reads the log, reads the alert, whatever, says, hey, okay, this is what's happening. Now, does it try to go and automatically fix it for you or does it do something like open up a PR against, you know, uh, the Kubernetes manifest that's creating the issue? So again, going back to like, and, and I know we're going to talk about this in a sec, but going back to like quotas and rate limits and stuff like that, um, you know, let's say that there's a Kubernetes manifest that is... I don't know. It's above the uh, above the the quota, above the rate limit uh, for for a specific pod, and it's like, okay, here's the problem. This is why uh, this pod keeps crashing because it's you know over the the requested rate limit. Um, will Robusta go in and like create a PR against that code for you, or will it just go in and fix the issue? So by default, what we do is we give you recommendations and we try and tell you why something happened and what the best practice is to fix that. But it's all customizable. So you actually can go, and it's just a YAML file that you configure for Robusta. So you can go and say, when this event happens, then I want you to go and fix that. And we have a lot of people doing that. Um, typically, the use case there um, is like, uh, you have an alert that fired, and then you know that there's a certain microservice that's unhealthy, and you need to make a change to that microservice or to be the pod. And you can't do it for various reasons, like with the usual mechanism. Uh, with diagnosis checks or health checks. Um, so th- that's a use case where we see a lot of people taking Robusta and doing these automations that remediate the problem or at least work around it temporarily till it's like, until it's the morning and uh, you can fix it properly. Um, but by default, we don't do that because we'd rather err on the side of caution. Um, but if you do want to apply the automatic remediations, then you can do that as well. By default, though, we just tell you, here's the problem and here's why it's happening and here's what you should go and do to fix it. Got it. Okay. That's awesome, man. Perfect. Yeah. And, and I think that that is the, in my opinion, that's the way to go. Uh, and the reason why is because again, going back to like the, the true automatic remediation, like going and fix, there are so many implications when it comes to that. There are so many different environment styles that you would need to take into account. Um, there are so many concer- uh, security concerns that would need to be taken into account. Um, you know, something, for example, that, that pops up in my head is when you install, um, you know, certain operators into an environment, you know, you have uh, role, you have cluster roles, you have role bindings, you have service accounts that are being created to run it and all that good stuff. And, you know, when you look at a lot of the implementations, you're literally giving the operator access to everything, full blown admin access. Um, and with that, like that could even be a security implication in itself where, you know, if you had something to do automatic remediation, maybe security teams look at that and they're like, this is, you know, we're, we're given full root access here. Uh, what are kind of your thoughts around that from a security perspective? So I, I come from a heavy security background. So is my co-founder and most of actually I of the team. So we think about it a lot and we want to have a model that's flexible. So you see some security teams that say, I want to restrict the access. And I don't want these automations to go and change anything. And that's fine. And like, that's a good way to go and we support that. 
And then we see some security teams that say, okay, today people are running these remediations manually. So today I have to give my ops team, I have to give uh, developers, or I have to give these people access to the production environments. I want to take away that access. So let's implement a controlled remediation where they can maybe push a button to do something, but we're only giving very specific um, roles there and only under very specific conditions. So by giving an automated solution the ability to run certain remediations, then you can take the power to do that or to do similar things away from the humans where you want to restrict it for security remediations. So the answer is it depends on your security team, depends on what you want to do. Um, and it's up to you. You know we have to support both modes though. Right. Yeah. And I think that's 100% the perfect way to go. Uh, I see a lot of platforms out there, big ones, you know, very popular ones in the Kubernetes space that when you, when you look underneath the hood and you look at, uh, what you're giving the operator access to, it's like everything, right? And you don't really have an option to, uh, update it and change it unless you, pull down the YAML, you update it that way, you put it into some repo, and then, you know, you got to set up some solution to deploy that to all of your clusters versus just deploying the tool the way that you're supposed to via the GUI or, or whatever the case may be. Um, so yeah, I mean, I think that there's always workarounds, but you have to be like very in depth in Kubernetes to understand what those workarounds are and to take a look at the code versus what it sounds like Robusta is doing is like, you know, taking away that manual effort of making you have to think about it. Here are the two options. Choose whatever one is best for your environment. And, you know, regardless, we're good to go. Yeah, I think we have a PR open at the moment, or maybe it was just a feature request. I don't remember the exact status on it. But from someone who's running Robusta in a very security-heavy environment, um, air-gapped environment, um, not defense-related, but related to an industry that has very strict privacy requirements. Mm -hmm. um, and they actually had some very specific requests there for features to add on to Robusta so that in the Helm chart, when you install it, then you can give really fine-grained details on what's running under what service account and what exact roles you're giving to Robusta. So we're also doing some work around that, I think, um, to give, to by default, maybe give what we think are the good defaults, but to allow you to go and restrict it further or to really fine -grain, uh, give a fine-grained solution if you want to do that. And that's kind of the general Robusta philosophy. We want Robusta to do everything right, like the way that we think is right out of the box, but we always want to give you an escape patch. We want to give you the ability to customize. We want to give you the ability to make it work for you if you have special requirements, because you can't always have one size fits all when it comes to these things. But by default, we want everything to just work if you agree with our, with our approach by default. Right. Yep. Totally makes sense. Awesome, man. Well, I, I think Robusta sounds like an awesome product. Uh, I think that everybody that's listening should definitely go and check it out. I, if it, It's my understanding that it's open source, right? So anybody can go in, play around with it. Yeah. So we have um, two parts of Robusta. First is the open source um, remediations engine, the automations engine. And that's everything we've spoken about so far. And all of that is 100% open source, MIT licensed, uh, runs inside your own cluster. And then we also have a commercial SaaS version. Um, it's free to get started. So most people um, who use it actually are using the free tier. So um, they don't pay for that and that will be free forever. And um, on the commercial platform, we add on a whole bunch of other capabilities. So we give you a single pane of glass where you can see all your Kubernetes clusters. When something goes wrong, you see all the data gathered by Robusta. You have um, a timeline. You can see all the events that happened on your cluster or on hundreds of clusters even, who changed why, who deployed something, when did they deploy it, when did another fire. 
and we have all these other capabilities in the UI, and that's um, part of our paid plan. And you can either run that in our cloud, like I mentioned, and there we have very heavy fleets here, or you can take that and you can self-host in your environment as part of our commercial plans. Um, so we do have all of that, but everything that we've been speaking about in the podcast uh, today is part of the open source offering. Awesome. Very cool. Yeah, I, I think that's a great model. You know, the the reality is, and I think, you know, everybody listening understands is, you know, companies got to make money, right? <laughs> but, you know, having the ability to have an open source version of the product, and that way people can use it and see it and, you know, show it to their VP of engineering, show it to their director of engineering, make everybody realize, hey, this is the product that we should be going with, you know, for this specific use case, uh, you know, and, and you have an engineering background, right? So you know how important having an open source product and a forever free version of a product is, uh, especially for startups, right? Yeah, it's almost like there are two products, right? And they, they even do kind of similar, they do related, but very different things. Like there's an open source project that does one thing and you want that to ultimately be installed in every Kubernetes cluster in the world. And I mean, that's our goal to really provide a good um, community-driven solution, open source solution. And that does one thing and does it really, really well. And then with that product, you also build trust. And then there's an add-on that does additional things that are related, but the first one has to be standalone. It has to have value on its own. Um, and then there's that related add-on project um, that gives you value that you probably want if you're using the first one, but that no one is ever going to force you to use. And the first one still makes sense to use independently of that as well. So it's almost like having two products and two different roadmaps where they complement one another, but each one, um, or at least the open source, should also be standalone. Awesome. Very cool, man. Perfect. So let's go ahead and uh, switch gears here for a second and talk about a topic that uh, I think you're you're arguably very passionate about. Uh, I've seen it tweeted and posted and written about several times. Um, and we kind of talked about it a little bit, but you know, when it comes to rate limits, when it comes to quotas, um, you know, let's say you put a quota on a namespace, right? Whatever the case may be. Now there is two versions where I think, you know, people ultimately go with memory limits and CPU limits. Now, I know that uh, you absolutely love CPU limits, right? <laughs> <laughs> I'm strongly against them. And um, so let, let me give, I'll start with my, with the bottom line, what I think is the best practice. And um, it's not very original. Um, this is the guidelines that I originally heard from Tim Hacken, who is one, uh, who is one of the uh, Kubernetes maintainers and creators at Google. And um, the guideline that Tim always gives, which I completely agree with, I mean, I'll go into the rationale for that, is that you should not use CPU limits, you should use CPU requests, and for memory, you should use both memory limits and memory requests. And all of that, it, at first glance, it's not obvious why it's different for memory and CPU, and it's not obvious why uh, you should have the request, but you shouldn't have the limit, and it goes against why a lot of people um, have been told and what a lot of people read, if you read various blogs online. Um, but when you really get into it, then it's all very intuitive and it all makes live sense when you understand why those um, recommendations are in place. Got it. I think that totally makes sense. Yeah, I, I'm a firm believer that the only, the only time that I actually see uh, like rating or, or limiting rather uh, CPU is if I'm like benchmarking something specific um, and I don't want it to crash because it's just going above and beyond. But I think day to day, like 
the types of you know, and I and I have a uh, I have an infrastructure background, right? And then I moved into development, uh, you know, about halfway through my career, and that's you know, then I was in the DevOps SRE platform engineer arena, which is you know where I kind of sit now, more or less. But you know, thinking about you know over a decade ago, uh, the the infrastructure piece of my career. Even then, I mean, CPUs from a uh, multi-threading standpoint, from a number of core standpoint, like the ones that are running in the servers that people are using, there's almost no reason to uh, set a CPU limit just because of like the the vast size of them, the the number of threads that you can have, the number of cores. And it would take a lot of applications, in my opinion, a lot of pods rather, to like really crash something like the fine-grained CPUs that we have in today's world. Um, whereas memory, uh, I, I, I often agree to set limits for memory because, you know, and, and you know, for, for everybody that's listening, the way that it works is like, it, let's say you have two pods. I'm just going to make this very simple. Let's say you have two pods. The one pod is running, but it's taking, you know, all of the memory. When you try to set up the second pod or when you try to run it, it's pretty much just going to sit in a pending state and kind of wait for some memory to come its way. So it, it'll literally just be sitting there and you're going to have to really dive in and ultimately figure out why, which you'll be able to when you look at the logs and all of that good stuff. But it, it kind of just sits there, right? Like it doesn't crash. It just sits and waits in some type of pending state. Um, so what are you, what are your, you know, what have you kind of seen in that space of, you know, like, well, I guess ultimately my, my question is, do you agree from a CPU perspective? Do you have another view on it or? So let me walk you through uh, the guidelines and I want to start with an intuitive explanation and then I'll jump to the technical explanation. Sure. Um, so the intuitive explanation for this is that imagine that you're walking in the desert and you're a group of people and you have a limited supply of water and um, one person wants to drink up all that water. So you shouldn't let them do it because it's going to hurt other people who don't have the water in the desert and they're going to die. But let's say you're walking in the desert and you're at a stream and there's an infinite supply of water, then there's no problem if one person wants to drink extra water. It's not hurting other people. And now casting that onto technical terms, then when you set a CPU request, then you're allocating a certain amount of CPU that you will get if you need it. And if all the pods set CPU requests, then everyone that has a certain amount of CPU guaranteed if they need it, and that's enforced at runtime. There's a misconception that CPU requests are only used for scheduling, and that's not true. They're also used for enforcement at runtime. And everyone is guaranteed to have the CPU that they requested with their CPU request. And if there's extra CPU available, if one person requested two CPU, but they're using zero, Someone else can take that extra two CPU. As soon as the pod that requested it wants it back, they'll get it back instantly. So when it comes to CPU, then if you just set a request, then what you want to happen intuitively will go and will happen. Um, it, everyone gets the CPU they requested when they need it. And if there's extra available, then other people can use it as well. So it's kind of like a soft limit. When you set a CPU limit, then what you're doing is you're putting a hard upper cap and even if you're in the desert and that is, there's that stream of water and there's the extra CPU capacity available, um, and you really need that badly because you're going to die without it, or you have lots of requests and you want to handle those requests and you need to handle them, um, you won't be able to do so. Um, there could be the CPU sitting there. You're paying for that CPU from your cloud provider. It's empty. You want to use it and you just are hard capped and you can't use it even if no one else is accessing it. So that's the difference between sending a CPU request um, 
installing a CPU request faster than that. Got it. Okay, cool. So really what you're saying is CPU requests are fine. CPU limits, there's no reason to use them. Yeah. And the number one people you number one people, number one reason that people use them is because people don't realize that CPU requests are actually used as soft limits as well. I mean, the behavior that everyone wants is you want someone, you essentially want everyone to be guaranteed the CPU that they requested. You don't want one pod to be able to go and consume this massive amount of CPU and then starve all the other pods. What people don't realize is that CPU requests alone without the limits um, are actually sufficient to do so. And I go through that in very specific technical examples um, in a post that I wrote in the Robusta blog. Um, for the love of God, stop using CPU limits or something uh, with a name like that. So I go through the technical details there. I show proof from the Kubernetes documentation uh, where it documents this behavior uh, because many people really don't realize that CPU requests are used at runtime as well and that you can get the protection that you need without introducing limits. Now, awesome. the difference though between CPU and memory is that CPU is compressible. Meaning let's say one pod uses all this extra CPU that other pods didn't need. And then the other pods now want it and they want to use that CPU. There's no problem. Like the Linux scheduler scheduled CPU to this pod and then the other pod needs it. So it schedules that CPU to another pod. Like no, you can take, you can give CPU and you can take it away. There's no harm done if you gave someone extra CPU that was unused. Memory isn't like that because with memory, once you give memory to a certain pod, you can't take that memory away without killing the process. So with memory, you can't be generous and give someone unused memory because like if someone else wants it afterwards, you can't take memory away from a process that's using it without killing it. Right. Cool, man. That's awesome. Well, thank you so much for that explanation. And for everybody that's listening, please go check out that blog. Uh, I read it myself as well. It's definitely uh, very deep. So I would say read it a few times if you're new to like the CPU memory limit game and all of that good stuff. But yeah, it's an awesome blog post. So thank you so much for writing that. Uh, and wrapping up here, uh, last and final question that I have for you. Well, question slash statement is please plug anything that you would like. Any Anything at all, please, please plug away. Okay, so two things that I'd love to plug. Um, first of all, um, it, by the time this is released, we will probably be close to KubeCon uh, North America. Um, so please come and say hi. We're at the robusta.dev booth. Um, please come, stop by. We'll give you a live demo. Uh, we have, I believe, the world's best Kubernetes t-shirts. Um, t-shirts like, my, uh, we have a t-shirt that says, my Kubernetes has no limits, uh, <laughs> which is a pun about what we just spoke about. Um, so we have great t-shirts. Uh, we have great open source tooling that we'd love to show you. So please stop by and say hi. The second thing that I'd love to plug is... Um, I recently recorded a video with my grandmother, um, who's extremely tech savvy, walking through um, it really for beginners what Kubernetes is, why Kubernetes is useful, and I use some non-technical analogies there. Um, it, so please check it out. That will probably be live uh, by the time that this recording is live as well. And that will be on the robusta.dev um, YouTube channel. So you can just Google um, Robusta Kubernetes, R-O-B-U-S-T-A Kubernetes. Um, and on YouTube and you should find our channel and that will be right there. So I hope people enjoy that. Awesome. Cool, man. Well, thank you so much for that. Thank you so much for coming on the show. And if you are at KubeCon North America, please stop by the Robusta group. Thank you so much. Really appreciate it. And we'll see everybody next time. Thank you.